Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm delighted to be joining you for this podcast. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Timothy Linton, who is the Albert and Angela Ferrone Distinguished Professor of Law at the Albany Law School, where he teaches torts, administrative law, legislation, and regulatory law and policy. He holds both undergraduate and law degrees from Yale University, has done lecturing at Harvard and a variety of other places, and has written influential books on various aspects of the law, uh, including a book on clergy sexual abuse and a forthcoming book called Can You Believe It's Kosher? Trust, Reputation, and Private Regulation in the Age of Industrial Food that will be published by Harvard University Press. Tim, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you. Uh, Can you give us a sense of when your book is likely to come out? Hopefully next spring, sometime uh, March or April. Good. We'll be looking for it. So let's talk about kosher food certification. Um, Tell me the history of how the certification uh, process has gone and uh, tell us about some of the early days, if you would, because as, as I understand from you, it's a lot different than what we see today. Well, kosher certification today actually is big business. Many people think it's just a niche market. But in fact, more products are certified kosher than are certified organic, premium, or natural. There are about 12 million kosher consumers, that is people who buy specifically kosher food. So it's actually a significant part of our food system. One of the things that's notable about kosher food is is that it has a long and fairly ugly history of corruption and unreliability, in particular consumer fraud, although other forms of corruption as well. And if one goes back to the 1910s and 1920s, one finds widespread fraud and corruption in kosher meat certification. This included not only the fact that the city of New York Department of Markets found in 1920 that about 40% of the food labeled kosher was actually not kosher, but also organized crime in poultry distribution markets, and including drive-by shootings in the poultry markets. There are famous stories of people who tried to beat the kosher poultry rackets and were gunned down in the middle of the day. The major problem was the obvious conflict of interest. If you have a person certifying kosher meat and they are paid for that certification by the owner of the meat, either the butcher or the slaughterhouse, then if there's any question about the certifiability of the meat, it's going to go in favor of the owner of the meat, not in favor of the consumer. And this is an endemic problem. There were many attempts to try and overcome this with community regulation and codes of honor and eventually government regulation as well, extensive regulation in the state and city of New York, none of which was really able to overcome this terrible incidence of fraud and this conflict of interest. What one finds is, starting in about 1920, the birth of a new institution, neither communal nor government, but an institution that's born in the free markets of America and the New World, and that institution is the Private Kosher Certification Agency. Today, there are about 300 of these agencies in the United States and about 1,000 worldwide. Many people will recognize the Orthodox Union or the OU symbol on the foods that they eat. And these agencies came up with a new model to make kosher certification more reliable so that we have a situation today where you can be pretty assured that if it's certified kosher, that it's got kosher status. Okay, so the system seems to be working well in in preventing the crime that existed in the earlier systems, but also giving some consumers consumers some assurance that if they buy something kosher that it truly is. Um, When you mentioned that there were 12 million people buying kosher-related products, Uh, What are the reasons people are making those decisions? One, I would assume it's mainly a religious choice. Well, interestingly enough, only about 8% of those 12 million consumers are religious Jews who eat only kosher food. 
The vast majority of them choose kosher food certification for reasons connected with health or other dietary restrictions or other religious restrictions or because they think that the food is safer. There are a variety of other concerns that consumers have that they use kosher certification as a proxy for. Okay, so the, the certification then infers certain things about the food or, or guarantees certain things about the food that are yes, important to people beyond Yes, although one religion. needs to be careful. It's not necessarily the case that kosher certified food is safer food or purer food or healthier food. So kosher certified candy bars or gumdrops or Gatorade are really the same, have the same health value that other forms of Gatorade or punch would. At the same time, there probably is some truth to the idea that kosher certification is an extra layer of supervision that may, in fact, lead to less contamination in food. Although I think people's sense of the faith in kosher is somewhat well-founded. It's probably a half-truth. But the core of kosher consumers, this 8%, are mostly concerned about kosher status of the food. And that's where the reliability comes in, that kosher certification really does deliver kosher status, even if it's only a loose proxy for these other consumer concerns. So for our listeners who don't understand what um, what kosher certification of food involves, like w- what the inspectors are looking for and what the criteria are for considering something kosher. Could you explain a bit about that? Sure. There are a variety of different rules related to the kosher status of food, things like there are restrictions on the types of food that can be consumed according to Jewish law, one of which is there are certain types of prohibited food. Pork or shellfish would be examples of prohibited food. There are other types of food that are inherently permitted that don't need any supervision, such as water, uh, or popcorn. On the other hand, there are foods that are certified only if they're produced in a proper fashion. So for instance, soups or other cooked foods would have to be certified and supervised and prepared in a certain way. Um, In addition, there's concerns about the mixing of things like meat and milk. What this translates into is in an industrial operation, a kosher certification agency would need to go in to inspect the initial facility and the production scheme to make sure that the equipment is clean and doesn't have any animal fats if it's producing a dairy product so that there's not mixing of dairy and meat, to make sure that the ingredients being brought into the factory are themselves kosher certified, and to make sure that the process of producing it doesn't violate any of the many rules that govern the kosher status of food. And once those routines are set into place, there would be a contract signed between the kosher certification agency and the manufacturing facility for unannounced inspections. And kosher inspectors would come and they would look at the food and they would inspect the production facility anywhere from between weekly to every six months. And on that basis, they would collect fees and certify that what's coming to the the, the manufacturing facility is all kosher certified and what's going out has been properly produced. Now, you said there are 300 firms that do this, uh, but you've also mentioned the big five. So there's some big players in this industry. That's right. Five big firms dominate kosher certification. They certify over 80% of the industrial food in the United States. So would they have similar criteria to one another? So if a, a food product was certified as kosher by one of those big five companies, versus another, is the product likely to be the same, and are the criteria likely to be the same? The big five actually have an enormous amount of discussions among themselves as to what the proper standards of kosher certification are. So while there's some variation at the margin, there's increasing consensus about things such as the kosher status of, for example, types of glycerin that could be introduced into food production in order to maintain kosher standards. Or another example would be the number of times or the frequency with which a certification agency ought to be inspecting certain types of facilities. Increasingly, there's consensus about this, and this consensus is then spread to the other 200 and some odd certifiers through pressure by the big five. Because the big five have such supply chain power, 
they're really able to call the shots. So if they have certain demands that their suppliers and the certifiers of the suppliers meet certain kosher standards, then those suppliers are likely to fulfill those demands in order to be able to sell to the retail manufacturer who is being certified by one of the big five. You mentioned earlier that one of the failures of the earlier forms of um, kosher certification was conflicts of interest, that the, the people doing the certification were being paid by the people who created the food in the first place, the butchers or the, the people who had the meat, let's say, or the food producers. Um, but isn't that same set of circumstances in effect now? Aren't the certification bodies paid by the food companies? One of the keys to kosher certification that allowed it to overcome this terrible history of conflict of interest is the idea of brand competition. Once kosher certification agencies were able to convince industrial food manufacturers that kosher certification was a desirable way to market their products and that they could sell more products if they did that, they needed to convince those manufacturers that their particular certification was better than somebody else's. And the way to do that was to argue that their particular certification had a better reputation among consumers, that their brand of certification actually was more reliable. And in order to deliver on that promise of reliability, both in the eyes of consumers and industrial manufacturers, they had to institute a number of reforms. And among the reforms were making systems more reliable within the agency. They built up middle management to make sure that there weren't mistakes, and if mistakes were made, they were dealt with, to decrease fraud and problems at the front lines of inspectors. And the other thing they did is they built in and they raised professional standards. They provided professional training in food chemistry and Jewish law to all of their inspectors. And they generally also tried to show that they were more transparent. If consumers wanted to know, how are you inspecting factories? What are your standards? Are they better or worse than some other certification? Certification agencies were increasingly forthcoming because that was a way to build brand value. And the more you could build brand value among consumers, the more likely it is that industrial clients would come to you. And so there's this built-in economic incentive to try and market reliability itself because that's really all certification is. Certification is nothing other than reliability. And to make your reliability more reliable than someone else's, you have to do things to actually deliver that. The second thing is, is that there's a strong industrial morality in kosher. It is a business, but it's not just a business. And because it's not just a business, there's a high level of concern to do things right and to not cut corners because of the religious value of kosher food and providing widespread and available kosher food to consumers. That's also an important part of the mix that helps with the reliability. But I think it's important not to overstress because even in the bad old days of drive-by shootings, you had religious people working in kosher. But the idea of brand competition was not there, and the idea of transparency and selling reliability consumers was not there. That's really the key to reforming this industry and to the promise it holds for trying to show that other forms of private certification elsewhere in the food system might be able to be reformed. So you could still see conflicts of interest existing in that a company, food company might have an incentive to hire an inspection firm that has the most lax standards. Um, and until consumers get involved, because when consumers find out that this may be the case, if I understand you correctly, then they would distrust products from this food company, buy them less, mm -hmm. and it would be a disincentive for companies to cut. Yes, water. and that information is often outed by competitors. That is, there's fierce competition for these contracts. So that if company certification company A goes in, and they provide certification, but they're doing it on the cheap and they're cutting corners, certification company B is going to make it well known among consumers on their website and in, through informal social networks and synagogues, et cetera, among these 8% of vigilant consumers, that certification A is not really that vigilant. And once that gets out, there's damage to the brand value of certification A, and either they're going to raise their standards 
or they're going to be dumped by the company and certification B is going to get picked up. So there's a lot of incentive among the competing, the competing certification agencies to out information and to keep consumers informed because it's a way to gobble up more market share. And you've mentioned also that vigilant consumers play a part in this. That's right. Consumers are always on the lookout. If I get a packaged product as a kosher consumer, especially one of these 8% are worried about kosher status and only eat kosher food. If there's something wrong with the product, if there's a bug in the product or something seems fishy to me, I'm going to report that to the certification agency. The certification agency is going to be very nervous that if this story gets out, it undermines their reliability and their reputation and their brand value. So they're going to launch an investigation. They're going to go into the factory. They're going to find out what happened. They're going to try and clean up whatever problem was there. A lot of the information that they get, the feedback, is consumer feedback. So you painted a picture of a system that works fairly well for the most part. Now, I know there there have been some failures in the system and some things that have been discussed in the press a lot, and I, th- I believe there was a firm in Iowa that, that was involved in this. Would you explain what that case was and how that involves? Sure. Things? Agriprocessors in Iowa was the country's largest producer of kosher meat and poultry. They ran a slaughterhouse operation. In most cases up until agriprocessors, if you wanted to produce kosher meat, you m- kosher meat did not have a large enough volume for people to actually own slaughterhouses. So they would go and they would rent the kill floor of a slaughterhouse for a kosher run. And they would kosher the slaughterhouse area, they would produce the kosher meat, and then it would go back again. Agriprocessors was a group of people from Brooklyn who actually bought an old turkey slaughterhouse, and they ran a completely, purely kosher operation. They ran an enormous operation that produced, I think, 60 or 70% of the kosher meat in America. And the problem is, is that they were caught involved in the same kinds of scandals that I think are fairly typical in industrial production of meat, which is labor violations, environmental violations, and financial irregularities. And that brought them down. There was an indictment, and the owner of the slaughterhouse and operator went to jail. Now, I think it's important to keep in mind why these are severe ethical violations, and people should be questioned whether they want to buy food products from a company like this. None of them have actually involved the kosher status of the food. So it has spurred a debate about whether or not kosher ought to be more broadly construed, but it was not really a exam- it wasn't an example of the failure of kosher certification well, so in terms of kosher status. Say more broadly construed, you mean that maybe the, the work conditions for the people working in the plants would be considered part of the picture. That's right. There's a movement, especially among uh, conservative Jews, to try and have kosher certification include other types of concerns like labor, fair labor standards or environmental sustainability. But that, for the most part, has not been adopted within orthodox uh, kosher certification, and the big five have generally stayed away from these things. They consider it outside of their field of expertise, and they don't really think companies would allow them access to supervise such things, even if they wanted to and were qualified to. So one of the things I admire most about your book, which I've seen part of, is that you use the kosher certification as an important issue in its own right, but also as a way of thinking how certification as a process, could be used in a more constructive way in other parts of the food world dealing with issues like food safety. Could you explain some of your thinking on that? Sure. We already have private certification in a number of other areas of food regulation, but in many areas it doesn't work well. So a good example of this is private food safety audits. It turns out that food safety inspection is the responsibility of the FDA and the USDA on the federal level and state officials at the state level. But the food industry is just too big and the resources are not large enough for there to be robust inspections. So for example, the FDA inspects facilities every three or every five years. That's not a high level of frequency. And we have a number of problems now in terms of food safety. While government regulation has accomplished a lot in terms of food safety, it probably hasn't met the expectations of the public. People are still upset about food safety outbreaks. 
And so what we have is a supplementary system of about 300 private food safety auditors. The problem with the system is, is that these food safety auditors are subject to the same conflict of interest that we saw in kosher 80 years ago. They are paid for the most part by the people whose factories they are inspecting. And what you get is if you scratch the surface of any major foodborne illness, an outbreak due to food safety concerns at an industrial plant, you will very often find involved in the story a private food safety auditor who, auditor who gave that plant a AAA rating. So I don't know if you remember, but there was an American peanut company scandal that involved a huge salmonella outbreak with terrible conditions in peanut production facilities, and the private food safety auditor had gave them a superior rating on food safety. I think one thing that we could think about is, what are the ways in which kosher food certification has overcome or mitigated this conflict of interest that impaired its ability to provide reliable certification as to kosher status, and to map that on to reforms that might be brought to bear on the private food safety audit system. And I'm thinking things like creating more consumer demand and vigilant consumer demand among 8% of the buying public for uh, better food safety standards. I'm thinking about brand competition that's not based on how cheaply you can provide food safety audits, but how reliably you can do that. And a market that involves a keen sense of the consumer and the reputation among consumers of particular food safety. So I could imagine a world where if a certain product was responsible for a food safety outbreak, consumers would move away from that product and move to a product that had a better food safety certification. And that food safety certification would be, private food safety certification would be a more reliable way to guarantee the food safety conditions in the production of industrial food. But I think that in the absence of that consumer demand and that kind of brand competition, we probably would not be able to expect very much from this system. So well, it's going to take a lot of hard work. One could readily see that consumer demand increasing just because there are more of these foodborne illness outbreaks that are occurring. I think so. I think there's a, there's a groundswell and growing concern about the safety of our food as the industrial food system, especially as it becomes globalized and larger. Good. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It's extremely interesting. So our guest was Timothy Litton. From the, he's a professor of law at the Albany Law School, and he's written a number of books, but most pertinent to this podcast is a forthcoming book called Can You Believe It's Kosher? Trust, Reputation, and Private Regulation in the Age of Industrial Food that will be published by Harvard University Press. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, for a variety of resources and other information on food policy. Thank you.